0: Amen. Amen. Uh, good morning, Christ City Church. It's uh, great to see everybody here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Matthew. I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, uh, good to good to see everybody. Hey, listen. Also, I want to introduce, uh, at the risk of embarrassment, um, a guest that's here. That's a, a dear friend of of mine and of Lisa's, Dr. Prince and Uh Dr. Prince and I serve together at Faith Alive Clinic in Jos, Nigeria. Uh, if um, if we can greet him. Um, Thank you. We're uh, delighted and honored that you're here. Dr. Prince uh, cared for us and our family uh, during our time in Nigeria. And um, it has been, as we've reflected uh, since he's been with us, uh, there's not a a day or a week that goes by that we don't reflect back on that time and that season and the ways that that has shaped us, even in our ministry here in Washington, D.C. So, Dr. Prince, it's it's a joy and a delight and an honor for for you to be here. Thank you uh, for joining us. Um, I was thinking uh, this past week, um, about, you know, they're like sort of sayings and proverbs that uh, maybe, you know, that are kind of commonplace here in, uh, in the United States, maybe in other parts of the West, that we kind of ascribe to the Bible, but that aren't actually part of the Bible. Anybody know? Like I was thinking about one, um, I was with my mom, uh, we were in Texas over 4th uh, of July weekend, and there was kind of one that bantered around. Uh, where it, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. I, I feel like I'm going to just like, frustrate some people right now. In this moment, you're going to realize, what, that wasn't in the Bible? Um, it, it's not in the Bible. Um, cleanliness next to godliness. Anybody ever, you, you heard that one? Yeah? Am I just now, it's not in the Bible. Uh, welcome, welcome to church. Here to teach you things. Um, John Wesley actually uh, popularized that in, seven, in 1790s. It was in one of his sermons and then has sort of just kind of bounced around. I, I have thought about that because I wondered... Which, which of my great and grand statements of my sermons will 200 years from now, people <laughs> might think, that's, that's scripture. And then you'll find out, no, that's Watson. Uh, so that was, that was one of them. Um, here's some others. Uh, God works in mysterious ways. Not in the Bible. Uh, now, there's other things, you know, Isaiah, you know, God's ways are not our ways. But that phrase is actually more attributed to Bono in a U2 song than it is to the Holy Scripture. A couple of others. Uh, Oh, here's one: Uh, "Spare the rod, spoil the child." Anybody? Some of y'all like, yeah. I wish Mama folks didn't know that that wasn't in the Bible. They sort of um, it's it's sort of a proverb. It's it's sort of a twist on Proverbs 13-ish, but it's not exactly sort of one for one. Um, Oh, here's one that um, that I didn't know. Just I'm gonna in transparency: "This too shall pass." Not in the Bible. Now, in my defense. Over 400 times in the Bible, it says, and it came to pass. But zero times, this too shall pass. That's a little more Gandalf uh, than it is Jesus. Uh, A couple of others. Um, To thine own self be true. Not in the Bible. Um, That is actually a crazy situation. Um, uh, It's Shakespeare. It's from Hamlet. And it's a father telling his son a series of... sort of like a list of advice, all of which is encapsulated as, be as deceptive as you can. And then he ends it with, to thine own self be true. So it's actually a, a bit of irony there. Uh, and then the last one, uh, which is what I want us to actually kind of zero in on, God helps those who help themselves. Not a proverb, not Ecclesiastes, not in the Bible. Uh, but it's, it's one of the lies that I want us to kind of unpack here this morning. For the last several weeks, we've been in this series, a truth and lies series, where what we have wanted to do is to address lies. We wanted to address a handful of lies that, um, that we've been told uh, as, we've, as we've grown up, as we've lived and moved around. What are some of the lies that we've been told by others to us? What have been some lies that we have told ourselves, that we've begun to believe in? What are lies that were forced on us or lies that we have willingly embraced? The other thing that we wanted to address a little bit here is when it comes to lies, lies aren't often 100% lie. That uh, what happens even when we see the, uh, the devil in the scriptures, when the, when the enemy comes and presents a lie, it's, uh, it's not like 100% just all-out falsehood. That there's always some kind of grain of truth in it that has been perverted or distorted or elevated beyond what it can bear it's not always a or b or yes or no or good or bad and this can actually it can complicate our uh, ability to name the lies and to name the truth but the, the the centerpiece of what we've wanted to do in this truth and lies series is to center the truth and not center the truth in like a propositional or in a theoretical sense but to center the one who said i am the way and the truth and the life that we have wanted to center jesus in the midst Of this uh, series. In the opening week, Andrea, uh, she started us off and she reminded us that lies can take root in systems and in structures. That we can see the ways that that lies kind of uh, 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 work their ways into the ways that we organize ourselves as a community or as a society, and and that those lies can then further oppressive and dignity-stripping purposes. She shared how Jesus, the the good and true Jesus that we find in the scriptures, the Jesus that understands the plight of the marginalized, that knows something of the oppression of empire, the truth and power of Jesus' truth, that that can be the thing that liberates and heals and welcomes and restores and gives honor. The second week, Lisa addressed the lie that you are not enough, this soul-crushing lie that we so often whisper to ourselves and that society so often shouts to us that we aren't enough, that who we are, what we do, that our personhood, the things that we uh, bring to bear to the world, that those things are not enough. And that lie uh, begins to, uh, to wither our souls. Lisa addressed it through this simple story and scripture of a young one who brought some fish and some loaves and surrendered them into the hands of Jesus, who then fed thousands, and reminds all of us that when our lives are surrendered into the hands of Jesus, not only are we enough, but we are more than enough. The third week, we address the issue of control, that you are in control, that you are the master of your own faith, that you are the lone arbiter of your future And we explored Matthew 6, a passage that culminated in this call to seek first not control and not authority and not rule, but to seek first God's kingdom, remembering that it is the Lord who holds the whole world in his hands. A couple of weeks ago, Justin, led us in unpacking this lie that you are what you do, that your productivity is, determines your worth and your value. And to erode that by the power of the Holy Spirit to remind you that you are more than the sum of your productivity, that you are a child of God. Just by your very uh, being and by who you are. Now, yes, what you do matters because actions can reflect your character, but none of us are defined by our best days and nor are we defined by our worst moments. God loves us regardless. Regardless. And it's from that place of love that God then invites us to join God in God's work in the world. Today, I want us to address this lie that God helps those who helps themselves. Now, part of this lie is that it sounds, like, it sounds good, like there's a symmetry to it, right? God helps those who help themselves. Like you probably like, I don't know, like I won't do it, but you probably like beatbox to it or something. Like it's, you know, there's, and also like there's a good bit of common sense and common grace just truth to it. It's it's a it's a statement that sort of is a call to to initiative. It's a it's an invitation to ambition and honest work. It's a call to, to create and to do something with oneself. It's it's a resistance to sloth and it's a resistance to passivity. So so there's a there is this grain and this truth and this rightness about it that does carry with it a, a sense of yes, like we we ought to uh, display these kinds of marks and characteristics. But the lie in it is that God's care and God's kindness and God's blessing is tied to your ability to help yourself. It's as though one might say, it's like an if-then statement. If you help yourself, then God will give you blessing. And this, and there's a couple of problems with this. First is just the big problem of grace. God doesn't just work on these kinds of obligations and exchanges. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a relationship of, of, of exchange here and, uh, uh, you know, as though we're uh, you know, I give you this and you give me that. And the whole point of the gospel is to communicate to the world of God's unfailing love, not your ability to bring your merit to the Lord. The second problem is that what if we find ourselves in places where we simply can't help ourselves? We just don't, for one reason or another, we just don't have what we need in order to get out of the situation that we're in. Are we going to then miss God's blessing in this? Sometimes our efforts, the truth of it is, maybe I'm the only one here, but the truth of it is is that sometimes our efforts to help ourselves, they just create more heartache. We get to a spot where even our best efforts, they just fall short. I got a buddy of mine named Sam from Memphis. I remember he would tell me all the time, man, some of my best thinking has gotten me into my worst trouble. Oh, man, that's, amen to that. It's a good phrase. Not in the Bible also, but <laughs> I appreciate that. Sometimes our own effort to help ourselves, it just creates more heartache for us or for those that are around us. Other times, we're just stuck. Like, and we can't get unstuck on our own. We just find ourselves in a, in a place, not that we had imagined or that we hoped or even that we planned, but we just stuck, and, and whatever is required to get us unstuck, we just don't have it. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, went out to Sandy Point um, uh, with the family, went, to, went out with the Nishizakis, and uh, we had some kayaks, and um, my, my son, uh, Nathan, oldest son, he gets in a kayak, and he uh, you know Sandy Point, Maryland, you guys kind of know it's not far, just a little bit you should go there it's a great great time to get there early if you want a good spot. um He gets in a kayak and he I think he just took off. I think he wanted to like kayak to like the outer banks or something from like Maryland like he just was gone, and like we can't see him anymore. we sort of get a little nervous and we're thinking i, I don't know like is he going to be able to make it make it back and so then I- i'm like. Lisa's, you know, a little, getting a little frazzled, which makes me a little frazzled, and then which makes her frazzled, and so it's just sort of this cycle. And I'm like, I gotta go get him. I jump in a kayak, and I just start kayaking out. Just start dealing. Now listen, I have kayaked exactly seven minutes in my life. Like I don't know what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of the Chesapeake, and like stuff's coming into my boat, and I'm like paddling, but I'm like, no, I have to save my son. And then I get sort of partway out there, and I'm like, I think that he might actually have to save me because he was on the rowing team at the Anacostia Boathouse and he's a much better, I probably should have just trusted him, but you just get out there and next thing you know, you're just stuck. Good intentions. Because sometimes we end up in places where we're just stuck and we don't have what it takes to get us unstuck. We need something from the outside to help us. Does that mean we'll miss God's blessing if we can't help ourselves? Sometimes it's not that um, our efforts create more heartache. Sometimes it's not that... Uh, we are stuck. Sometimes it's just that we're lost. It's not where you wanted to be. It's not where you had hoped. But you just sort of look up and you look around and nothing is familiar anymore. And you don't know which way is which way and the compass doesn't help you and the experiences that you've had before, they they haven't really fully equipped you to help you know kind of what is the way forward. And you're just lost. Sometimes we get lost in, in, in relationships where... Things started out one way, but then they took a turn, and next thing you know, you're in a situation that you didn't imagine, didn't hope for, and you're just you're just lost. Lost in a career or a career venture. You headed out with a lot of promise and a lot of hope, and things didn't break the way that you'd hoped. And next thing you knew, you're just uh, things feel a bit in shambles, and you're not sure which way to go from there. Sometimes we feel lost in faith. We grew up in a faith, we grew up in a tradition that. Uh, seemed secure and just seemed right, but then life got in the way, and next thing we knew that the things that we thought were true, they just didn't hold as true for our circumstances or for the pain that we've experienced or the harm that we've, uh, that's been done to us, and, and we're looking at our faith, and we feel lost in those places. Is God only going to help us if we help ourselves? Well, what do we do when we're just lost? If it isn't true that God helps those who help themselves, then who does God help? The passage that we read that I think is good for us to reread comes out of Psalm 121. Psalm 121, it's a psalm of ascent. The words of scripture wash over us. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. In this series, we've, we've consistently sought to identify truth in the person of Jesus, not a, not a proposition or a theory, that in order to combat the lies that we continue to run into, our response is to continue to run to Jesus, the author of truth. And in this passage, the psalmist notes immediately straightway where help comes from. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. That includes everything. There's there's nothing that is outside heaven and earth that God has not created. And that includes the circumstances and situations into which we find ourselves and which we need help from, which we need help out of, or we need help through. That everything was created by God. And because of that, we can have trust, we can have a confidence in the one who has made all things. And then this thing happens through Psalm 121, five times in six verses, this cadence of He watches over you. God watches over you. In verses three, four, five, seven, and eight, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you. Verse four: He who watches over Israel, which is to say, he who watches over his children. Indeed. The Lord watches over you, verse 5. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from harm. He will watch over your life. Verse 8, the Lord will watch over your coming and going. The, the thing is, by the way, in 121, verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The truth is, that verse, at least for me, perhaps for you as well, it, it, it sticks in my throat a bit. Because there's experiences that I have where I'm saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this. The truth of this passage. We all bear scars from, from multiple wounds from life. And that's why it's important for us to ask well, what exactly does this mean? To, to dig in a bit, in the original Hebrew into which the Old Testament was written, including Psalm 121, the word for harm, it doesn't actually mean like harmful events, it means evil. And the word for life, it means soul. That what the psalmist is, is, is trying to communicate in this particular verse, in verse 7, that as we journey, with God, that evil will not be able to take us out of God's presence, that we will always journey and always travel with the one who loves us most, who loves us deepest, and is caring for us most fully, even when we walk through valleys with shadows of death. It is from that harm, it is from that evil, that isolation, and that despair of soul that God will keep us and hold us. What does it mean that God is watching over us? God watching over us is, is is God as a as a guard as a as, as a watchman. A phrase that we've used at different points in the life of Christ City is that is that God is keeping vigil over us. Vigil is often used as as one who is keeping awake and who is keeping alert. Oftentimes through the watches of the night while others sleep. Other times it's keeping vigil next to someone who is in a vulnerable place, like in a hospital or who is healing from some wound or some illness. While we are most vulnerable and even while we rest, that God is keeping vigil over us, contending on our behalf, working on our behalf, even when we are unable to work on our own behalf. God is watching over us, safeguarding us, especially during times of our vulnerability. Even when we can't see him or hear God, God is with us. Watches over you, saints. But it's not just that he's sort of guarding or safeguarding us. The other thing of God watching over us is that God is delighting over you. The, the, to have God's eye on you is to experience God's delight over you. Um, over the weekend, we um, went down to the wharf. Uh, you know, we've got Dr. Prince in town, so we Went out, wanted to show them a little bit of, of, of D.C., um, you know, some of you that are native Washingtonians, I understand the wharf is kind of a new, don't at me about that. Um, but we're walking back, and Annalisa, my daughter, she comes up to me, she says, Dad, you want to watch me cartwheel? Now, you know, we're walking, like, you know, down the street, and I'm, but the answer is yes. The answer is always Yes. Um, so I said, said, okay, yeah, you know, maybe let's find some grass. So she finds some grass and she just begins to cartwheel. Never done gymnastics, cartwheels, some of them she landed on her feet. Some of them she landed on other parts of her body. All of them. Great cartwheel, baby. That's what's up. Good job. she's She's just cartwheeling like down the wharf. The water thing into the ground, like she's just cartwheeling. People waiting at the bus stop, she's just cartwheeling, cartwheeling. Now, she could have done that on her own. She could have just done that all by herself without anyone watching, but she wanted her father to watch her. She wanted to experience her father's delight over the things that she is doing. Repeatedly, when Psalm 121 says God is watching over you, it's not just that he's guarding or protecting you, but that whatever it is that you are able to do or unable to do, it does not matter that God is delighting over you. He's enjoying you. He's believing in you. He's cheering you on. He's comforting you when you feel broken and hurt, that he is there for you. Five times in six verses, the psalmist says that God watches over us, that God guards us and delights in us, not because we help ourselves, but because He is our help. The thing is, though, much like when we talked about and discussed control a few weeks ago, there is effort for us to do. There is work for us to do. There are things to, to which we are to place our hands. There are, it's not just that we sit uh, passively by just waiting for the Lord to show up. There are, there are things for us to, uh, to co-create with the Lord. There's a participation with the work of the Spirit that we're invited into. And that work is outlined in the opening verse. Verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? Your task, my task, is to lift up our eyes, to lift our gaze, to turn our gaze towards the one who is our help. The psalmist says, look to the mountains. There's a bit of a double meaning happening here in uh, verse 1 of Psalm 121. You see, the mountains, um, a couple of things. One is, Psalm 121 is a song of ascent. It's a, it's a psalm that is sung as those that were going to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, that they would sing that song. Um, so the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, it sat on a hill. And so as they ascended the hill, this would be a psalm that they would sing. And so when it says, where do I look? I look to the mountains, I look to the hill, I look to Mount Zion, I look to, 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 the, to the location where God dwells. I look to the place where I go to worship the Almighty. Where is my help? My help is there. It's in the mountains. But the other thing is, often in the Old Testament when it talks about mountains, it, that mountains are places of danger. Mountains are the places where like, nooks and crannies and caves and caverns Hold bandits and robbers they were places of of, of danger there are places of, of accidents where they happen my, my, my foot can slip I can uh, something can happen in the mountains the mountains are the place that i fear and yet what the psalmist is doing is it's taking both of those images and both of those uh, those images and, and, and bringing them together and saying yeah that's the same place The place that you look at and that you fear, that also is the place where the Almighty can dwell and meet you there. The place where you are aching for help, that can be the place where God will meet you there. The place where you find your your wounding and where you're needing healing, oftentimes that's the place where God will meet you there. You don't have to go some other place. God isn't requiring you to change your circumstances or your location or your geography or anything on your own. He's not requiring you to just help yourself before he will meet you. He's saying, I will meet you wherever you are, wherever you're stuck, wherever you're lost, wherever you're broken, wherever you're hurting. I'm there, I'm at that mountain. Your task is to turn your gaze there. How do you lift your eyes? You lift your eyes from the place where you need help to the one who is ready to help. First is just to simply just acknowledge that God is the maker of heaven and earth. God is the one that holds your life and all of our lives together in his hands. So remember that God has God's eye on you. That God delights over you. God has not abandoned you or left you to yourself. And then to know that the places where you need help, that you can call out to the one who watches over you, as it says in verse 8, that watches over your coming and your going, that watches over your entire life. God is there. So I guess just let me ask, like, where, where are you stuck? Let us pray together for someone or someones to help you find your footing. Where are you lost? And you can call to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, to provide you with someone or someones to help you find your way forward in the places where you're lost. Where's your effort doing more harm to yourself or to those around you? Then pray to the maker of heaven and earth that the Lord would provide someone or some ones to help you try new patterns so that you can grow and that you can flourish. And what is required is not that you help yourself, but that you lift your eyes. Let me pray for us.